Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, again, Chag Tzumeach, welcome to our Etzheim era of Yom Kippur service. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is when we take stock of our lives, repent, and thank God for His provision of atonement. Prefigured in, uh, in, in the Torah's two goats of Yom Kippur, uh, the, the goat of sacrifice and the scapegoat, uh, which both uh, pointed to our, our ultimate forgiveness and atonement through the blood of Messiah, uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Yeshua as our sin offering. So tonight I want us to look at the core of the good news of the gospel, why we need a Redeemer and what he, Yeshua, did for us. And our text tonight is in Romans 3, verse 23 to 26, on the overhead. And for some reason, it's not working back here, but all right. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Yeshua, the Messiah. God presented Messiah as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Yeshua. Amen. So the text here says, for all have sinned. Does that make you afraid? It should. But it doesn't. Uh, for two reasons. First, few of us have a, a proper knowledge of God. So we don't know who God is, who it is whom we should fear. Second, few of us have a proper knowledge of self. Oh, and of how sinful we are by our very nature. Uh, how sinful our deeds truly are. For all have sinned. And there's so little power in most preaching today. Because how rarely are the attributes of God set before the sinner. God's holiness, his righteousness, his purity, his justice, his sovereignty. People today glibly say, uh, yes, I'm a sinner, uh, but they don't know how terrifying that confession is. Because they don't know God. And very few uh, teachers are proclaiming the full counsel of God. A God who's holy. A God who's perfectly righteous. We've lost the fear of the Lord in America today. And we are facing in this country judgment because of it. Just as Jonathan Kahn proclaimed yesterday, God have mercy on us. On the overhead, it's only when we know who God is, we understand how horrific the declaration is, all have sinned. What does it mean to sin? You deviate from God's will. You break his commandments. You don't do what he tells you to do, or you, or you do do what, what he prohibits you from doing. Either way, it's a trespass against God and an offense against his glory, against his holiness, against his righteousness, for all have sinned. Let's put this in perspective. God created a world with just a word. He said, let there be light, and the light obeyed him. He told the sun and the stars, put yourself in a certain place in space, they all bowed in reverence. He told the planets to follow a certain path marked out for them. They all submitted to his will. 
He told the mountains to be lifted up, and they obeyed. He told the valleys to be cast down. They bowed in reverence. He told the seas to come to this point and no further, and they worshipped him. And then he told you to come, and you said, no, I will not. And thus all creation comes together in agreement to applaud your condemnation. For there will be a judgment. Indeed, the high holy days that we're in right now are known as Yom Hadin, Judgment Day. When the books are opened and our lives are judged. For all have sinned. Uh, And when you're witnessing, when you're sharing the gospel, you must uh, impress these truths on the souls of men. And that's why most so-called evangelism is so ineffective today. Most evangelism today is superficial because it does not confront people with their sin or require repentance. And therefore, there's no power in it. And that's why so many so-called conversions and professions of faith are shallow and false and temporary and ineffective. When you share the good news of the Messiah, Yeshua, you must preach the whole gospel. You must deal with the fallen nature of man, uh, of our sinful hearts, of all men and women. And you know how to use the script. You must use the scriptures when you do so. Because that's where the true spiritual power lies. Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The text reveals something fundamental about our nature. Your inner thoughts reveal the character of of who you are, of your nature. And this this text tells us our thoughts are evil continually. If I were to take every thought you ever had, and I was able to put it on a DVD or an MP4 video file and show it here on these screens, you would jump up and scream and run out of this building and never show your face again. And the same would be true of me. Because you've thought things so vile and so wicked that you would never share them with your closest friends. You thought things against your closest friends, that if they'd known them, they would no longer be your closest friends. If your thoughts were laid bare here tonight, you would run out of this building in shame. And then you also know all those looking on your evil thoughts, they've had the same evil thoughts. Even among the wicked, you cannot bear for them to know who you are. Now, if that's true, and it is, how will you stand before a holy God? How will you stand on Judgment Day? Do you think your case, that uh, his case against you, will be dismissed? If you're judged just, just based on your thoughts alone, let alone your deeds or your speech, you'll have to admit that the Lord will have judged you correctly when he condemns you to eternal judgment. What about that was before the flood? What about after the flood? Well, Genesis 8.21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. The Lord said to himself, I'll never again curse the ground on account of man. Why? For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Evil isn't just the result of, of outside influences. We do evil because our very nature is evil. So, for example, you take your average two-year-old. Say you're holding him in your arms 
and he sees this shiny watch that you're wearing, and he reaches for it. Uh, and you take his hand, and you say no. Uh, he gets angry. Uh, he reaches again for the watch. You say no. He begins to flail his hands in the air <laughs> and swing them at your face. You grab his hands. You say no. I submit to you, if at that moment that two-year-old had the strength of an 18-year-old man, he would, he, he would beat you right then and there and rip the watch from your arm and rejoice in having that shiny watch without feeling one ounce of remorse in his heart. Likewise, who teaches the child how to lie? No one. <laughs> they learn it on their own. Who teaches the child how to be selfish uh, and how to scream and have tantrums? No, they learn it on their own. If you don't believe in the natural cruelty of children, well, I guess you've never been to a public school. <laughs> Men and women are naturally evil from their youth. You say, oh, I don't believe that. That's your problem. <laughs> and the reason why most people don't act, the, uh, act that way, that evil, isn't because of the innate goodness in their heart but because of a good God who restrains evil men so that society can function and the gospel can be preached. Let me ask you, what makes you or me different from Hitler or Stalin or Mao? Have you, have you wondered why these evil dictators were as bad as they were? Have you, have you ever wondered what restrains most men from, from that little sort of evil? The scriptures say all men are evil. And the only thing that restrains fallen, unsaved man from becoming murderers is either the lack of opportunity uh, or the lack of power uh, or the fear of retribution. Uh, and, and also because, thank God, we are restrained by the grace of God. If it wasn't for the common grace of God restraining us, we'd all in our natural state become utterly lawless. One of the greatest problems with the gospel today is that men aren't being told what men are. The Bible teaches we are radically depraved. Uh, uh, that means that, that our fallenness and our evil uh, permeate every part of our being. And we therefore have no hope apart from the grace of God, the gospel of God. If you don't believe how bad men are, just, just read a newspaper <laughs> or, or, or a news website or social media, a news report. Even today, our cities are aflame with chaos and lawlessness, violence, looting, riots. That's what the media calls mostly peaceful. <laughs> or just look at human history uh, from any era or any place, and you will see the unabated cruelty of men against men. And instead of getting progressively better, the story of human history is the exact opposite. The 20th century saw more people killed in war than all the prior centuries combined. The death camps of World War II defy human comprehension. Six million of my people systematically exterminated. And by the way, Stalin and Mao killed many more times that of their own people. And with today's weapons of mass destruction, we're only the push of a button away from annihilation. And if it doesn't happen, we've seen what a supposedly accidental plague can do. Now imagine if a plague was unleashed intentionally. A pastor in Zimbabwe recently said, you know, in Africa, we don't fear lions, nor do we fear elephants, 
Nor do we, we fear crocodiles. In Africa, we fear other Africans. We fear other men. The same with us. When we walk outside, we don't fear some attack from a bear, right? Or, or, uh, but we're guarded when we walk through a dark alley. Uh, for no reason at all, men will steal from you, attack you, kill you, just for their own pleasure. We've all seen how quickly the thin veneer of civilization descends into chaos and anarchy and rioting and destruction when police presence is even momentarily withdrawn. Peacetime is an illusion. When the world is at peace, it's just because everybody is reloading. <laughs> Look at Isaiah 64, verse 6. For all of us have become like one who's unclean. Uh, all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. I heard an account recently of a missionary who works with lepers. Uh, he, down in the Amazon in South America. Have you ever seen leprosy? Most of us have never seen, actually seen it. Uh, it's frightful. If we had a leper here tonight, you would have smelled him before he, before you even entered the building. He'd be a mass of blood, uh, and rotting flesh, rotting flesh and pus oozing from his body. And by the way, that's the illustration that God gives uh, with regard to unregenerate, unconverted man. There's nothing in our natural fallen state that is pleasing to a holy God. Now, you can attempt all sorts of things to clean up this leper. Let's say you went out and bought the finest white silk and wrapped him in the silk to make him presentable. What's going to happen? It won't take long before the corruption of the man himself bleeds out into the silk. And the silk becomes just as defiled as the man. That's why good works and charity and good deeds cannot save you. Because you have no good works. Isaiah 64, 6 says, even our good deeds are as filthy rags. Literally in the Hebrew, I used menstrual cloth in the sight of God. Because you have a corrupt nature, and out of that corrupt nature only comes forth corrupt deeds. And that's why even our best deeds are as filthy rags before God. Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than them? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Sin is a universal reality. I remember years ago reading some accounts of the Nazi war crimes at Nuremberg, the trials at Nuremberg. And at one point they called forth a, to testify a, a, an old Jewish man who had suffered greatly at the hands of the Nazis. They called him forth to testify at Nuremberg. And he was facing actually one of the Nazi guards who had done him great harm. And, and this Jewish man begins to weep. And the judge asks him if the trauma of facing this evil Nazi was too great. And he said, no. It was because facing him, he saw such, such little difference between what the Nazi who had done such atrocities to him and his own heart. You see, sin is a universal reality. We have an overabundance of proof all around us. The scriptures are true when they speak of the depravity of man. But men will not hear the gospel unless they're first willing to hear this verdict against them. For all have sinned, both Jews and Gentiles. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then down in verse 10, as it's written, now it's quoting the Hebrew scriptures. There's no one righteous, not even one. 
There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They become altogether worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Now, to dwell in heaven with a righteous God, you must be righteous. But the scriptures here affirm there are none righteous. No, not even one. By your own standing and your own virtue and merit, you are not righteous. And neither am I. Tragically, we only seek God when we have some need. A health issue, a money issue. We seek God when we have a need. Because we're self-absorbed and self-centered and full of self-love. And we don't seek God unless God has first sought us out. And then a work in our hearts. Is he doing that with you tonight? Is he speaking to you? To your heart? Listen for that still, small voice. How many people in America today claim to be children of God? Claim to be regenerate. But their life does not bear it out. They don't think on the will of God. They don't obey the will of God. They don't mourn when they break the will of God. They don't give their lives to the things of God. They're only about getting their best life now. There's none who do good, the scriptures say, because our heart is bent and twisted away from God. But if you ask most people why they think they're going to heaven, they point back to their own goodness. Here's a typical response. Are you a believer in Yeshua the Messiah? Yes. If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Yes. Why? Because I keep the Ten Commandments. I try to do good. I take care of my mother. But the Bible says no. Romans 3 verse 12. There is no one good, not even one. And then Romans 3.19. And we know whatever the law says, the Torah says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. What is the purpose of the law? Is it to save? No. Now, that does not make the law unholy or unrighteous or unworthy. Just the opposite. Romans seven twelve. Uh, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is holy. The problem is that we are not. Men cannot and will not obey the law. Rather, we are lawbreakers. We are covenant breakers. We are faithless children who do not follow after God. And therefore, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Romans 3.23, again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, what does this mean? The most popular teaching today is that God has a glorious purpose for your life. And that because of sin, you've missed this glorious purpose. You've fallen short of the glory. But that's not the primary meaning. The primary meaning is that you were made for the glory of God. That's why you were made. But you've turned away from him. God says, follow this rule. You say, no. The Lord says, live for me. You said, you say, I'd rather follow another God, the God of self. God says, you were made for me. And we say, I'll not have any of it. I'll take sovereignty over my own life. I'll claim lordship myself. I will do for me what I want to do. But the fact is, you were made for him, for the Lord. You were made for God. You were created to worship him. We're just saying that. (laughs) But we refuse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the guilty verdict against you tonight and against me. 
Let's go on in our text, the next verse, Romans 3.24. And all are justified by a gift, uh, as a gift by his grace to the redemption that came by Messiah Yeshua. On the overhead, what does it mean to be justified? It means the moment you truly repent and trust in Yeshua, the Messiah, you are legally declared right with God. It's a legal declaration from the throne of God that you are now right with him. Now, how is this possible? How can a man be right with God? That's the question of the ages. That's the main question of the Bible. Now, based on this question, there's only really two types of religions in the whole world. If you study all the world religions, you'll see uh, there, there's messianic biblical faith. Uh, that's one category. And all the other religions in another category. It's on the overhead here. And on the one hand, there's religion of works and human merit, which is all the world religions. On the other hand, there's a religion of grace, which is messianic Judaism and biblical Christianity. That's just, there's really only messianic biblical faith and all the other religions of the world. A religion of grace versus a religion that requires human merit and good works. So, for example, if you interview uh, an Orthodox Jew, Sir, if you die tonight, where would you go? I'd go to the way of the righteous, to Gani Den, Garden of Eden, to heaven, with Hashem. Why? Because I love the Torah, and I obey the Torah, the law of God, and I keep the law, and I'm a righteous man. Okay, then you interview a devout Muslim. Sir, if you died tonight, where would you go? I'd go to paradise. Why? Because I love the Quran, uh, and I obey the Quran. I've made the pilgrimages. I give the alms. I say the prescribed prayers. I am a righteous man. Then you come to a Yeshua follower, uh, a Christian, a Messianic Jew. Sir, if you died tonight, where would you go? To heaven. Why? And then he begins to tell you something you don't understand. He says, I was born in sin. In sin, my mother conceived me. I broke every law of my God. I deserve nothing before him but his wrath and justice and judgment. You say, sir, I don't understand. These other two men, I understand them. They say they're righteous men. By their own deeds, they've earned heaven. But what you're saying is confusing. How are you going to get to heaven if you claim no virtue, no merit? And the Messianic believer smiles. He says, I'll go to heaven based on the virtue and the merit of another. Yeshua the Messiah, my Lord. That's the doctrine of justification. But let me say this, and this is so important, because this doctrine of justification has been twisted today and perverted. So let me emphasize, the full biblical truth are those who've been justified have also been regenerated. On the overhead. The meaning is that you've been given a new heart. And with those new hearts, you will lead a new life. Uh, On the overhead. Uh, Indeed, the evidence of justification that you've been declared right with God is that your heart is now changed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you begin to live a newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone be in Messiah, they're a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. If we're justified, we are justified as a gift uh, by God's grace. Notice that the word, it says gift and grace, they're, they're synonymous. They're synonyms. But it's emphasized here with both words because men hate God's grace. 
Why? Because of our pride and rebellion. Our desire to exalt ourselves even over God himself. We unconsciously say, I'm righteous, my deeds are worthy, God owes me heaven. But grace comes to the one who recognizes, I have no deeds. That's why we hate God's grace. It only comes to those who admit, I have no deeds, I have no merit, I have no virtue. And therefore, I fall upon the unmerited favor and the mercy of God through the person and the work of Yeshua the Messiah. Now, concerning the crucifixion of the Messiah, John fifteen twenty five, Yeshua says this, But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their, in their law. They hated me without a cause. He was sinless, but we, none, we nonetheless hated him without a cause. And that's the exact same word used here in Romans 3.24. You were justified without a cause. as a free gift on the overhead. The sinner gives God no reason to save him. When a holy God comes into contact with a sinful man, the only motivation the sinful man can give to a righteous God is to condemn him. God didn't save you because of you. He saved you because of him. When God explained his reasons for loving Israel, over in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he simply said to Israel, I love you because I love you because I love you. (laughs) It had nothing to do with Israel. It had everything to do with God. It was an act of his grace. Romans 3.24, although justified by the gift of his grace for the redemption that's in the Messiah Yeshua. And the overhead. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means to be set free from prison, from slavery, from captivity, because a price has been paid. So if you've been redeemed, it's because a price has been paid. A priceless price. Because you've been redeemed by the blood of the Son of God, his own Son. On the overhead here. So do you need a motivation to walk in godliness? Do you need a motivation to say no to the world and the flesh and the devil? I'll give it to you. Yeshua shed his blood. The blood of God for your soul. What more do you need? Meditate on that. Think on that. Messiah shed his own blood for you. That's the motivation to live for the Lord and obey his commands. And to do it for any other reason is idolatry. It's because he died for you. And in dying for you, he doubly now owns you. First, God has a claim on you. He owns you by right of creation. He he, he created you. He made you. And he owns what he makes Uh, on the overhead here. But God now has a double ownership on you. And then not only did he make you, he has also now remade you. He has redeemed you. He bought you. He bought you with the price of the death of his own son, the blood of his own son. And once you truly grasp this, it will be the only fuel you need to propel you into godliness. Knowing the great price that was paid for you. Now in our text, Romans 3, the emphasize of this redemption is in the Messiah Yeshua. Exclusively in Messiah Yeshua. Nothing else. Yeshua is all we need. And by the way, he's all we have. Outside of him, there is Nothing. On the overhead, we come to God in the name of Yeshua because apart from Yeshua, we have no part with God. He is everything. Our entire life is found in the sphere of the person and the work of Yeshua, the Messiah. Outside of him, there is nothing. Outside of Yeshua, there's nothing. 
Romans 3.25, God presented Messiah publicly as a propitiation, it's a fancy word meaning as an atoning sacrifice through the shedding of his blood to be received by trusting in him on the overhead. Propitiation is a sacrifice for the purpose of atonement. It's a sacrifice given to satisfy the demands of God's justice and to appease his wrath, which our sins deserve. Through his sacrifice of atonement, a just God pardons wicked men. And yet God still remains just. And now we get to the very center of the cross. Romans 3, 23, 24. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And all are justified freely by his grace. And this presents the greatest problem in all the scriptures. Here's the problem. We talked about this a little bit at Rosh Hashanah. Uh, if God is just, he cannot forgive you. Proverbs seventeen fifteen. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to God. And we just read it in Romans 3. That's exactly what God did. The Lord justified the wicked. So the greatest question in all the scriptures is this. How can God be just and at the same time justify the wicked? The whole sacrificial system, the whole gospel, the whole Bible is ultimately about that one question. How can God be just and at the same time be the justifier of wicked men? This is the center, the core of the gospel. Here's a graphic illustration. Let's say your best friend's home is broken into. uh, And the robber in the course of the robbery slaughters your friend in cold blood. And you just happen to be on your way to visit your friend. You notice the front door is open. So you walk in and you see the murderer standing over your friend with blood dripping from his hands. You rush the guy. You knock him down. You tie him up. You call 911. It takes an hour for the police to get there due due to the defunding. (laughs) But they finally get there and they they, they, uh, cart him off off to jail. And by the way, he immediately gets out on bail due to the modern bail reform. (laughs) But he eventually gets to trial. And he stands before the judge. And the judge looks at the man who slaughtered your best friend in cold blood. And he says, you know, I'm a loving judge. I'm going to pardon you. You're free to go. What would you do? You'd write the newspapers. You'd call the media. You'd post on Facebook. You'd go on TV. You'd write your congressman and your senator. We'd even try to get call the attorney general and the president. You do everything to make it known. There's a judge on the bench more wicked than the criminals he pardons. Judges must do justice. Or else they are not just. They are not good. And they're not loving towards the victim. And the victim's family. And the rest of society who has to deal with this criminal out on the streets. Let me now ask you again. If God is just and you are wicked, how can he pardon you without thereby becoming an unjust judge? That's the question of the whole Bible. That's the question the gospel answers. Because that's the reason why Yeshua the Messiah died. Romans 3, 24 says that God displayed him publicly as a propitiation, as a sacrifice of atonement. How fitting it is to talk about this tonight on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. To display publicly is kind of analogous to placarding something on a billboard. To be seen by everybody. On the cross, 
God the Father placarded, publicly displayed his son as our Yom Kippur sacrifice of atonement. Why did he do this? To demonstrate something. Romans 3.25. God displayed Messiah publicly as a sacrifice of atonement for the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Why? He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the justifier of those who put their trust in Yeshua. All throughout the ages, God had been merciful to men. He spared Lot and his family. He spared Noah and his family. Abraham and David were both called God's friend. Yet both were sinners, had many transgressions. How could a just God pardon them? On the day Messiah died on the cross as our Yom Kippur atonement, God answered every objection. God says, I can pardon Noah by my sovereign grace. I can make Abraham my friend. I can adopt David as a son. Because this son, Yeshua the Messiah, the son of God, died for them. Look to him. God says, every man who's ever been spared has been spared for one reason. Because my son died for them. And is the, uh, and in dying for them, he satisfied the demands of my justice. And so now I can be both just and the justifier of wicked men who put their trust in Yeshua and truly surrender their life to him. Now in the past, before the coming of Messiah, God in his mercy overlooked many sins, but no longer. Acts 17.30 Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now calling all men everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So let's close by looking now at the death and the resurrection of Messiah. He's hanging on the tree. He cries out, Matthew twenty-seven forty-six: My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening here? On the cross, on the tree, God forsakes his only son. Why? Well, Yeshua's quoting here the first verse of Psalm 22, which is a Hebraic way of referring to the whole psalm. So let's look at Psalm 22, verse 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. But by night, but I find no rest. Yeshua quotes this verse, acknowledging that on the cross, he's abandoned by God. Look at verse 4 and 5, Psalm 22, verse 4. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Uh, to you, they cried out and were saved. To you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Yeshua, because he's referring to the whole psalm, also has these additional verses in mind, which King David, the psalmist, says that you, Lord, you always rescue you always deliver your covenant people, Israel. Whenever your people cry out, Lord, you always save and deliver them. But now Yeshua, in essence, is saying, is saying, but now I, your only begotten son, hang from the tree, but you refuse to rescue me. I cry out to you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you don't help me. You're far from my words of groaning. Why? 
the psalmist goes on to say, uh, uh, and, and, and picture Yeshua saying this on the cross uh, uh, in this prophetic messianic psalm. He says, yet you, Lord, are holy, verse 3. Uh, but I am a worm, verse 6. By the way, the actual Hebrew here for worm in, in verse 6 of Psalm 22 is the word tola'at, which actually refers to a color of blood uh, as in a sacrifice. Yeshua calls himself this blood-red worm because on the cross, all the sins of the world are placed on him as our Yom Kippur scapegoat. Yeshua was therefore considered guilty before the bar of God's justice. He stood, he stood in your place and mine. He was treated as you deserve and as I deserve to be treated. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And heaven's door is slammed shut by God. And the Lord God cries out to Yeshua, the Lord damns you. My beloved brothers and sisters, someone had to die bearing your sins, standing in your place as your substitute if you would have any hope of salvation. Yeshua was perfect and sinless and he agreed to be condemned for your crimes so that you might be delivered if you repent and trust in him and submit your life to him as your Lord we all otherwise stand condemned. Galatians 3.10, as it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in this book of the law to perform them. Galatians 3.13, Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it's written. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Yeshua was separated from God, dying on a tree, bearing your sins and mine. The night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out in Matthew twenty six thirty nine, Let this cup pass from me. What's that all about? What was in the cup? The wrath of Almighty God was in that cup. It was the cup of God's wrath. It was the holy hatred of God for evil. They had to fall upon the head of Messiah and crush him for our sakes. This will be read about the suffering servant Messiah in Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself an asham, a guilt offering. By Yeshua taking our sins and suffering God's wrath, therefore, the demands of God's justice were satisfied. That is how God can be both just and, adjust, and, the, and, and justify us. He's just because the demands of his justice were paid by Yeshua. And therefore now he can justify, he can save and deliver and rescue and redeem you. Though we are sinners deserving of, of death. But the penalty of sin was paid for by Yeshua. If we're his. If we're in him. If his spirit abides and resides in you. Yeshua died for our sins on the tree. But that tree of death became now a Netzchaim, a tree of life. And three days later, up from the grave, he rose. He rose a victor over sin and death and hell and the grave and Hasatan. He ascended to the right hand of the Lord on high. And he now lives forever to make intercession for you and me. And by this resurrection, vindicating all of Yeshua's claims, God the Father declares to the universe, as in Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, after his resurrection, ascends on high, and he comes to the gates of heaven. 
And we see now the fulfillment of Psalm 24. And he cries out, as in Psalm 24, verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up all you ancient doors. The King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors. The King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And Yeshua now walks through those gates of heaven. And every angel falls prostrate upon their face before him. Crying out as in the ancient hymn, all hail the power of Yeshua's name. And the overhead, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem, you chosen seed of Israel's race. You ransom from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace. And crown him Lord of all. Yeshua, he takes his seat on the throne at the right hand of the Father. Perhaps repeats the last words from the cross. Which, by the way, are also the last words of Psalm 22. It is finished. And on this Yom Kippur, as you read in Zechariah 13.1, a fountain now is opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. A fountain of Yeshua's blood to cleanse you, to purify you, to remove your sins, to make you right with God. So all you with sin which is all of us. Now is the time to confess your sin to the Lord, to repent, to turn from your transgression through the blood of Yeshua as our Yom Kippur sacrifice to seek his mercy and forgiveness and atonement and reconciliation and restoration this night of Yom Kippur. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Let the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Father, we confess to you tonight on this Yom Kippur that we have sinned and fall short, far short of your glory. We are not righteous on our own. Our nature is one of sin and transgression and rebellion and pride and selfishness and iniquity. Our hearts are inclined towards evil. Our motives are mixed at best, never pure. So we come to you tonight, Lord, on this day of atonement for forgiveness and cleansing, and covering, and rescue. And we acknowledge that this forgiveness and atonement is only possible through Yeshua, the Messiah, the Son of God, through his death and resurrection on my behalf. You, Yeshua, are our once-for-all Yom Kippur sin offering, guilt offering, atonement, and substitute. It's by your blood that our sins are forgiven, that our conscience is cleansed, that we're given a new heart and a new spirit. Lord, we know that the evidence of true salvation is regeneration. That we're new creations. with new hearts. With your spirit living within us. And this results in a changed life. A new life. Walking in the spirit of the Lord. So Lord, tonight on this air of Yom Kippur. We repent for our many sins. And we ask you to renew our lives. Uh, to revive our lives, to transform us from the inside out, to cause us to return to you as our first love. For, Lord, we confess we've grown lukewarm. We store our first love for you, Yeshua.
our burning fire and passion for you. Help us, Lord, tonight to fall in love with you all over again. For you, Yeshua, are our King of glory. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Hak Sameach. Abraham, the